This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 26th of October. And as we all start to polish our eco-efforts in the face of climate change, today on the programme I had a question for you. Would you walk out of a job because your employer's environmental values didn't align with your own? Yep, we were talking about the growing trend of climate quitting. And we were joined on the show by two people who've already done it. Plus, we got loads of different opinions from everyone who was listening. And it was a really, genuinely a fascinating conversation. Meanwhile, the company Meta has figured out a way to read our minds. Yep, that is a true story. It isn't sci-fi. And we found out how they've managed to do it with the local virtual reality expert, Dr. Samir Kishore. And continuing our sci-fi theme because a Hollywood doctor has just published a book suggesting we could all live to 120 within the next two decades. Cardiologist Dr Ernst van Schwartz is the author of The Secret World of Stem Cell Therapy and he joined us on the programme. Meanwhile, scientists have proven music can take away the feeling of physical pain. But what about heartache? We mulled over the issue with musicologist Professor Joe Bennett. And we saw history made in cricket last night with the biggest ever win in the tournament's history. Our favourite cricket expert, Mark Archer, joined us to give us the lowdown on that and the upcoming Rugby World Cup final. As you can imagine, with the UN Climate Change Conference, COP28, just weeks away and due to be held right here in the UAE, the focus is falling quite firmly on how to reduce carbon emissions. And I think lots of people are actually taking personal steps, you know, or steps in their personal lives to have a positive impact. But what if you were making all those efforts, but your work wasn't doing the same? What would you do? That's my question to you today. Would you put pressure on your boss? Would you maybe stand up for the climate in the workforce, trying to encourage your colleagues to do more. And if it came to it, would you quit? Well, uh, there is a new trend. It's a movement, in fact. Uh, And the more you research it, which is what I was doing last night, the more you find out about it. And it's called climate quitting. It's even got a phrase. Um, And according to research by the carbon removal marketplace, which is called Supercritical, 35% of UK workers, that's 35% of 2,000 UK office workers who were surveyed, said they were willing to quit their jobs over weak climate action from their employers. And would you believe it, that figure increased to over half for their Gen Z employees. I have to admit, I mean, that's for the UK. I wonder if it'd be the same out here. I mean, obviously, we're an oil and gas producing nation. So a lot more of us work for the sort of oil and gas industry out here. Um, I wonder whether that number would ring true out here. I've had to admit, and I have already admitted, there really isn't a chance that I would quit my job for that reason. You know, I'm freelance here at the radio station. I work for all sorts of different events companies. And I I never, it just never even occurs to me, frankly, what their eco credentials are. I mean, maybe it's time I started considering it, um, but certainly I, I haven't considered it so far. And the whole sort of concept of climate quitting was was very new to me until yesterday. I've been asking our audience whether they would, I've been asking you lot basically, whether you'd quit your job because of the eco-credentials. So far, we've had two responses. Candy and Talal have both said no. They wouldn't. Um, but maybe someone listening, somebody listening here in the UAE would. And if you would, I would love to hear from you. If you wouldn't, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch. 4001. Join the conversation on 04871 Well, as food for thought, I am delighted to say I'm joined now on the line by two people who have gone through the process of climate quitting. Uh, Caroline Bennett is the director of Clout Market Intelligence Firm and Sharon Cleethy is the CEO of Gemini Eco Tours. Now they're joining me both on Teams. Uh, Caroline, I'm going to start with you. Can I ask what you used to do before you quit your job? Yeah, thanks Georgia and uh, good morning everyone. Um, So for 10 years I was a safety 
culture consultant for Shell, actually, and some other um, big clients in the petrochemical industry. So I was really involved in empowering the workforce to talk about and share their um, share their ideas about safety at the front line, including concerns. So I, we ran employee surveys, listening to the voice of the workers, basically, and then communicating that back to frontline management and middle management to say, look, this is where the gaps are. Actually, you know, this is where people have some concerns. This is where you're doing well. This is your strengths. These are your areas for improvement uh, and how they could do that. So um, we assessed safety culture, but not through my eyes, uh, but through very much through the uh, the eyes and the voices of the frontline workers. And what led you to quit? So many things I guess along the way wasn't one thing um probably when I first started working with Shell I wasn't like hugely comfortable because I knew that there were lots of pollution issues not so much climate change I suppose I'm talking um 2010 2011 that perhaps wasn't a big part of the conversation in the world but uh, certainly I was aware of kind of localized pollution especially perhaps in um places like uh, Nigeria where there have been a lot of you know problematic uh spills um, so, but I thought, you know what, they are actually wanting to do good in the in the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon Gulf of Mexico disaster. There was a the industry had a there was a bit of a shockwave there actually, and I think the industry all went ah, that could have been one of us. It wasn't one of them, but you know it was BP, but it could have been one of them. So I think they said, okay, what we need to do is take a take a look at this, take a closer look at this. So I wasn't hugely comfortable, but I thought actually, you know what fair play they are you know really serious about this so I got involved and I guess over the time my awareness of greenhouse gas emissions climate change started to increase but I still thought you know I'm doing good in this job I can help prevent pollutions and harm to people and so that went on and I justified it and justified it and I loved my job I loved my job and I worked with some fantastic people but over time I started to think you know what I'm not seeing a transition here, I think for me, supporting a safe transition to uh, renewables uh, and, uh, you know, reducing our dependence on uh, fossil fuels is one thing, but actually kind of feeling like I was still supporting expansion, extraction, I didn't really feel comfortable with that. I was also seeing repeat problems coming up, particularly again in, in Nigeria, but also we I worked quite closely in in Middle East, in, in Qatar, uh, in Majnoon, in uh, Egypt, and we were seeing kind of like the same things. And ultimately, there was no conversation that I was hearing through the methodology that we were using to, to listen to the voices of, of the workers about decarbonisation, net zero. So I kind of thought, you know, this needs to change. And I was a contractor, so I didn't have the ability to really bring anything on the inside because once I did the surveys, I, I kind of stepped away. So, yeah, I just it got to the point where I just thought this isn't transitioning. I was learning about expansion projects and I just thought, you know what, I, I can't I just can't do it any longer. I, my good conscience, I, I'd become a bit of a climate activist locally. And just, you know, that that kind of uh, discomfort, that conflict uh, was just becoming unbearable. So I thought I'm going to go. And the only way I can really have impact as an outside consultant is to go public with that and, and hope and send a message to the, the CEO and the board of directors that, you know, I think that you are taking huge safety risks with the planet, um, putting it in safety framework. And uh, yeah, it, it had it certainly had some impact. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes because obviously the impact of quitting is it, it is is what makes it more important, I suppose. You know, you want to have you want their, that that moment to be impactful. Otherwise, it's just affecting you personally in some ways. Uh, Sharon Kilthy, what did you used to do before you climate quit? Hi, Georgie. Yeah, I was a management consultant uh, with McKinsey and Company. It's a big international American management consultancy that works for big companies and also for government doing all sorts of things. And at the time I had specialized in public health care. So like Caroline, I felt like I was doing something very positive on my job. And I was, you know, I was part of something very positive, surrounded by very inspiring people trying to make uh, UK healthcare better and help people live better, longer lives. So um, I actually in a way, my climate quit was was different to Caroline's. And by the way, I remember Caroline's climate quit. I remember seeing it on LinkedIn and I remember being very inspired by by her doing that and by her um, explaining to people what she was doing and why. I thought it was very 
brave and very powerful. But um, my climate quit was different. It was less of a protest quit. It was more that I just felt frustrated at being quite far away from the front line of climate action. And um, like Caroline, you know, when I started at McKinsey in 2005, 2006, I was completely not tuned in to climate change at all. You know, my job usually involved flying from Dublin to London every week. I would buy a bottle of water in the airport on the way there. I'd buy a bottle of water on the way back. But over time, I got tuned into, at, the, at first, I got tuned into plastic waste and zero waste living. And um, there's that, you know, that beautiful girl in New York who produces a jam jar of trash every year. And, you know, I was following her on Facebook and learning about that. And then it was really having my daughter in 2014 that somehow really connected me, reconnected me with some fundamental truths. You know, I think breastfeeding a baby just reminds you like, you know, what the milk in your fridge was intended for. It, it wasn't intended for for us, you know, and it, it just and where it comes from. And it just reconnected me with some fundamentals. And I had some time and I watched lots of documentaries like Cowspiracy and different things like this. And it just woke me up like in a shock to the whole situation. Um, and after that, I just started to feel like the work I was doing um, was just a bit sort of abstract. And I longed to do something more practical. I was kind of the frustrated friend on Facebook sharing, you know, sharing about, you know, top 10 ways to reduce your climate footprint, you know, fly less, eat less meat, drive less. And all my friends were blanking those posts you know they just wanted to see photos of my daughter but they didn't want to hear me banging on about um about climate and I, so I felt frustrated there was no kind of way for me to apply my my passion and my understanding of it um, and so that's why I quit so it wasn't it wasn't that I felt my employer was doing bad things against the climate or, or and you know I think I'm one of those people Georgia that um you know it's debatable whether I should have quit well, so yeah, I was going to ask, yeah, go did on. it not have a massive, I mean, McKinsey is, you know, working for McKinsey, that's a good job, well paid. And, and you know, you went on to start your own business, ultimately, to become an entrepreneur. You run uh, the uh, Jiminy Eco Toys uh, now. You know, did it not affect your bottom line in the household, ultimately? Absolutely. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, yeah, no, running a small social enterprise like Jiminy um even though Jiminy is actually one of the larger independent toy stores in Ireland. Okay, it's small market, but still, um, it, absolutely. No, you don't earn a fraction of what you earn as a management consultant. The thing is, because I I had started living quite a minimalist pers personal life, um, I had savings. You know, I was earning more at McKinsey than I needed to live. And so, you know, I was able to live off the savings for the first, you know, year year and a half until I started earning with um Jiminy and um but if I hadn't had that privilege of having had you know such a well-paid job and in a way I had no time to spend the money I was just working all the time um then if I hadn't had that then I couldn't have I couldn't as easily have done what I had done but I could have changed my job but here's the thing Georgia here's maybe what I should have done instead McKinsey has a really good sustainability practice in fact one of the first people that I heard about the climate crisis from was an amazing McKinsey partner called Jeremy Oppenheim who gave a speech in Dublin I reckon it was 2007 2008 and he showed us the chart of the temperature over time um, and it going up and up and that was the first time I learned about the topic so I could have actually stayed and either you know put together a program to improve their I don't know to encourage people not to fly as much in McKinsey or or I could have you know they're very open to new initiatives there I could have joined the sustainability practice and you know maybe working for big organizations like they do maybe I would have had more impact than I have starting a small you know, retail business as I've done. We are discussing a new movement, a new trend on the agenda this morning. It's called climate quitting. And basically, it's when an employee feels that the company that they're working for isn't true to their own sort of values when it comes down to being eco-friendly, looking after the climate, reducing your carbon footprint. And what is extraordinary is just how many people are indeed quitting good, well-paid jobs 
because they are more worried about the impact that that company is having on the environment. And we are mid-conversation with two such climate quitters, uh, Caroline Dennett, who's Director of Clout Market Intelligence Firm, and Sharon Kilthy, who's the CEO of Jiminy Eco Tours. Now, just before the break, we heard about how uh, Caroline and Sharon both uh, quit their jobs. Caroline, in particular, uh, made the move as a sort of protest quit and and actually wrote about it a lot on LinkedIn, for example. Caroline, I'd be really interested to know what impacts that actually have, because of course, you made the decision to leave Shell because you didn't feel that they were uh, living, you know, that they were working to, to the same values that you held. But you decided to step outside the company rather than work from within. I did. So I was a contractor. So that's a little bit of a different position. I kind of really wasn't on on the inside. And I guess one of my other, you know, one of my motivations was by doing something dramatic and hopefully impactful, it would kickstart a conversation on the inside. And And I do believe that that happened. Um, And I've seen, you know, others taking action from the inside. So, for example, last month, two Shell employees supported by another thousand members of staff uh, issued an open letter uh, to uh, the CEO, Wales Wan, really pleading with them not to cut investments in renewables um, and in their kind of low carbon sectors. So that got a lot of attention um, in the news and on LinkedIn as well. And there was actually 80,000 members of staff in Shell had actually looked at that looked at that letter so you know so that was really happening unfortunately just yesterday uh, the plea was ignored because the ceo announced that shell is actually going to cut um 200 jobs from the low carbon um department um and a further 130 under review so but it just just goes to show that you can kind of start you know start a, a conversation and and i think it's not just about employees actually there's two things actually there's there's what employees can do and then there's what business can do um and i think you know that is going in the right direction as well on monday 131 global companies signed uh, again an open letter uh to cop 28 uh saying you know governments must reach 100 percent decarbonized power by 2035 in the wealthiest of, of nations so you know i think the conversation is going in the right direction we need action uh to follow so I think, you know, I'd, I'd just like to think that by quitting and very lucky, it was probably a slow news day. It did go very viral, you know, that that planted a few seeds uh, for people, both in terms of employees, you know, and in terms of businesses looking at themselves and saying, actually, what can we what can we do? Business has huge lobbying power. Uh, and if that can be used for good, uh, then I think it puts us on a pathway to a safer future than what we're looking at right now. Caroline, it sounds uh, like it was definitely the right decision for you. Sharon, would you recommend it? You know, if you if someone's listening to this and they're, you know, they're thinking, actually, the reality is, is my employer's environmental values don't align with my own. Would you recommend quitting like you did? Yeah, I think um, I would recommend pausing for for a moment to think about how you can have the most impact. You know, if there is scope within your job or within your employer, maybe you could even sidestep into a different role to do it if needed. But if you had scope to influence, especially if it's a bigger company and to make them better, you know, to change, you know, you you could even work on getting the food in the canteen to have more veggie and vegan options because eating less meat, more plants is one of the big things we can do. Um, could you change their travel policies to encourage more video conferencing, less flying? You know, all of those things in a big com- company could actually have a big impact. Um, and maybe, you know, you could even take bigger actions, more fundamental op- actions about that company's business model. So I, I feel like if you think that you could have more impact by wearing your climate hat in your current employer, then I think staying is the right thing to do if you can. Um, And then, you know, I do talk to people all the time who say, you know, I've tried and nobody's listening. I feel very frustrated. Um, You know, I guess at some point you need to make the call. If you can't have any impact where you are, then you need to find somewhere else. I have a good friend who always says, go where the energy is, Uh, you know, so find a spot where you can have some impact and go do that would be my advice to anyone. And that's what I've tried to do myself. Um, you know, for myself, I have had a lot of impact by starting Jiminy.ie, the eco toy store. 
Um, you know, we have an audience now. I talked about being the frustrated person on Facebook trying to influence my friends. We have a community of 17,000 people um, on social media, 10,000 email subscribers. And to date, we've had over 15,000 unique customers. And we've influenced and educated each of those people on the power of how they choose to spend their money. We've educated them about products and what makes for a climate neutral product. You know, what makes a product eco-friendly? By the way, you know, the top thing you can do is not buy a thing. And the second top thing you can do is buy something pre-loved. But, you know, and we're talking about all those things and we, we have an opportunity. They're mostly moms who are following us. So we we influence them on other things like, you know, for Halloween, instead of carving your pumpkin, decorate it and then eat it, you know, so you're not generating all that food waste or we get to um, throw in little eco living tips and people always comment and tell us how much they've learned from us. So, you know, that all has had a really good impact that I'm very, very proud of. I guess the only question in my mind is, could I have influenced way more than, say, 20, 25,000 people if I had stayed at a big company like McKinsey with the reach and influence that it has. And I guess I'll never know the answer to that question. Absolutely fascinating speaking to both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the radio today. Uh, you just heard from Sharon Keelthy, who's the CEO of Jiminy Eco Toys. I've just taken a look at it. It's a gorgeous website. And uh, Caroline Dennett, who is director of Clout Market Intelligence Firm. Thank you both for your time this very early morning. It's been good to have you join us. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. I promised you a slightly extraordinary story next, and indeed we are going to look at it. Uh, It is... It's one of those weird stories that doesn't seem to have sort of captured everyone's imagination in the way that I would expect. But basically, Facebook parent company Meta has figured out a way to effectively read our minds. And I am not exaggerating. Jen has been looking into this for us and joins me now in the studio. Jennifer Crichton, that is. Uh, Jen, mind reading. It's new. And it's real. Yes. It's it real. is real. Yes. I mean, I don't want to give anyone sleepless nights, but yes, really, it is real. Now, the firm, let's be honest, it's already got no shortage of information on us. It owns Facebook. It owns Instagram. We're all communicating with it every day. So it knows enough about us, let's say. But it has now developed a new AI system that, yeah, it says it can read our minds. Now, essentially what it's doing is it can reproduce images within seconds when we think about them in our heads And it's doing it by reading brainwaves through a process known as, I'm going to try and say this right, magnetoencephalography. It's known as... That, I have to say, someone needs to give you a prize for that. (laughs) That, That's amazing. (laughs) It's known as MEG for short, which I'm going to stick to from now on. And essentially, it's a non-invasive neuroimaging technique. Again, not sure what that means. That measures the magnetic fields we produce in our brains. So essentially, it reads our brainwaves and it produces an image from them. Now, it is worth saying the tech is also using artificial intelligence to produce the resulting images. And while they may appear within seconds, the results are, I would say, mixed. There's a very good cat in the example images. A very good cat. So hang on a sec. So you get the person to imagine a cat and then the Meg. <laughs> Not the giant Not shark. Not the giant shark that eats people. Great movies. Um, <laughs> the Meg creates... I like movies about animals that eat people. Sorry. Um, Yeah, creates the tech just from reading your mind. The tech then produces the image. So you think of a cat, it produces a cat. And the cat looks like a cat. The zebra is very wonky. Um, There is a panda that looks like a sinister dog. And there's a horse with eight legs. (laughs) I I mean, what they're reading there is so surreal as well. I mean, how they come up with that. But I suppose if you think of a horse and the horse you get is one with eight legs... They are still reading your mind. Yes, and the animals given as examples are all, to a greater or lesser degree, broadly recognisable. I can tell it's a horse. It has eight legs. That's not ideal. But but I can tell it's a horse. So the question is, how on earth do they do it? Now, it's a question that I put to Dr. Samir Kishore, who is the programme coordinator of the MSc Robotics Programme and the head and founder of the VRX Lab at Middlesex University, Dubai. Have a listen to this. So reading our minds is a bit of an exaggeration as expected. Brain-computer interfaces have been around for a long, long time and there has been lots of super interesting research on understanding visual perception using brain signals. 
my own research from about I think nine years ago used EEG signals to detect what a user might be looking at and move a robot accordingly. And while, while that was quite primitive, what we're seeing now with the advent of generative or foundational AI is actually really fascinating. So what is happening here is that the researchers have used magnetoencephalography signals or MEG for short to record brain activity thousands of times a second. I think about 5,000 is what's mentioned in the paper. And in simplest possible terms, when you look at a picture, the MEG signals in response are processed, and then a computer tries to recreate the picture based on what your brain was doing, right? So the way that Meta has made this work is by using three parts. One part understands the picture that is being viewed, one part understands the brain activity, and the third part tries to make a new picture from the brain's activity. Again, sounds very cool, works really well. However, the computer's recreated pictures aren't perfect yet. They get the big ideas right, more or less, as you might have seen in the videos as well, but the image generation model hallucinates the small details by itself for now. Another limitation actually is that it works on images that are currently being viewed and doesn't work well on imagination. So if you're seeing something, it works well, but if I ask you to imagine something, it doesn't work well at all. It doesn't work if you're distracted either. So they did a thing where participants were counting backwards while looking at an image and their data was completely rubbish. So that's a trick there if you're concerned about, you know, privacy or ethics in the future. I love that tip so much. Completely rubbish data if you count backwards. So if anyone sees me wandering around Dubai Mall muttering backwards. Ten, nine, eight. It sounds paranoid, but I feel seven, like counting backwards is maybe the new tinfoil hat. Six, five. <laughs> Maybe we're being unfair because in truth, Meta and many sector experts say technologies such as these could actually have some very positive implications, particularly in the world of healthcare, as Dr. Kishore explained. Why they would work on this, according to their own author, is to help the scientific community understand how images are represented in the brain and then use later as foundations of human intelligence. Actually, that links straight to one of their own very clear research initiatives, which they've made public, is to make AI models that think and reason like humans. They've also spoken a little bit about the longer term benefits of using this in a medical setting where people that have suffered from a brain lesion uh, could use something like this. But of course, the current study that was done was done on healthy participants. So we don't know yet whether if it, it would even work on people with brain damage. Of course, that's why they do call it a longer term goal. But again, just to calm you down, we're far, far away from having the first thing, a portable MEG device. You know, although in the future, if they were to exist, we would need to talk about ethics. If Meta develops technology that can decode brain signals, of course, uh, there would be worries about how this data is stored, used, and who has access to it. And, you know, there's always that question about, is my phone listening in on my conversations? Is the microphone recording my conversations because it somehow knows exactly what I'm talking about and it shows me the exact ad for the thing that I was discussing. Well, with this, it gets even more personal because now it could just be something you see or even worse, it could just be something you imagine and Meta knows about it, the ad companies know about it and it starts popping up on your phone. So of course, uh, with the technology, we have to be wary of where it's going, but we can also you know, appreciate the, the the fantastic work that has been done just from a technological point of view. Three, two, one. <laughs> I'm absolutely horrified. Yeah. And I know the phone's listening to us. I know they keep on trying to say they're not, but they're definitely listening. I mean, I, I wonder how we then deal with, apart from counting backwards. I'm just going to count backwards they, I, all the time. <laughs> it sort of fits with the OCD, doesn't it? I couldn't, I couldn't sleep last night at four in the morning because the cat woke me up. I was trying to count then and I actually do count from 100 down. Normally you get to about 64 and then I'm asleep. Oh, that's not bad. I got to 20 something last oh night and goodness. then I got bored and went and got a glass of water. Okay, it's not the only big tech story that's doing the rounds at the moment. Do you know, one of my favourite things to do at the moment is just go onto the tech pages for uh, when we're looking for stories to cover on the show because they just keep on coming. They just, like, oh, that and rain stories, weather stories. We are on Rain Watch, by the way, if you want to get in touch. Uh, there's no rain here in Knowledge Village yet, but it looks like it's coming. But yeah, weather and tech, two lovely, safe 
ish topics for us to do <laughs> on the radio. So, yeah, very quickly, what are the other two developments that you've spotted? Very quickly, Chinese augmented reality firm Xreal has launched a series of next generation glasses that it says offer a full VR experience without the use of those bulky headsets that mess your hair up. So if you're into VR, that could be helpful. And X, formerly known as Twitter, has introduced voice and video calls for its premium customers, of course. You'll need that blue tick. It's the latest in a series of changes made since Elon Musk took ownership. And it's already available on iOS, Apple, but it's said to be coming to Android soon. Fantastic. Interesting stuff indeed. Do keep us posted with any uh, fascinating tech stories that you might have spotted. And we'd love to get your thoughts on exactly what it is like to have your brain read. Do you feel comfortable with this? Do you think it'll be a, a useful tool or are you absolutely horrified? This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Any excuse to play a little bit of Oasis. I would have had more punch if I'd hit the right button first, but never mind. The reason why we're playing that is because a brand new book looking at immortality is making headlines. That's after the author claimed humans could start living for as long as 120 years within the next decade. And the author, cardiologist Dr. Ernst van Schwartz, certainly isn't a crank. In fact, he is a triple board certified internist cardiologist and heart transplant cardiologist based at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Centre in Hollywood. I caught up with him earlier and he started by giving me a little bit of context to the revolutionary treatment. We are shifting from what we call reactive medicine to something which now is named regenerative medicine. So usually if a patient comes to me, for example, that patient comes because he has pain or he can't breathe or there's something wrong as a result of a disease or an illness which might have caused some damage, for example, in the heart. So as physicians, we treat the symptoms and we try with the medications to react towards the symptoms of the patient and to prevent further damage. But we are not really addressing the damage which has occurred already. And so that's where what we call regenerative medicine comes in, where we try not only to react towards the symptoms or the damage, but we try to repair. So how do you do that? This is basically this whole relatively new area of regenerative medicine using stem cell therapies. So stem cells, even though not FDA approved in this country, but the concept of stem cells is basically their job is to repair damage. That's what they are supposed to do. But we as adults, we lose the number of our stem cells with age and we lose the quality of the stem cells So, for example, if you have an embryo in utero and a leg falls off, that embryo is able to rebuild that entire leg in utero because of stem cells. If you cut off the leg of a salamander, that salamander can rebuild the entire leg because of stem cells. If we lose a quarter of our liver, for example, as a result of surgery or something like that, Our liver has such a huge amount of stem cells that the missing part can be renewed, basically, and the remainder of the liver can take over the function of what has been lost. But that's not for other organs. That's not the case for the heart. That's not the case for the brain or the kidneys. So we have a stem cell power within us, but we lose the ability to use our own stem cells to regenerate damage. But that's where stem cell therapy comes in, where we use external stem cells, sometimes from the patient, but mostly nowadays actually from donor materials, in particular placenta tissue, umbilical cord tissue and blood from donors. That's not embryonic, by the way. 
which have an enormous power and potency. And by applying those stem cells for a variety of different conditions, we have seen since the last 22 years now that there is an enormous power to repair, whether it's in the heart, whether it's in the brain. There's tons of studies in, for example, patients with what we call neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's dementia, as well as patients with heart attacks, where externally applied stem cells have shown some degree of repair of damaged tissue. And as a result of the repair, improved cardiac function. So it is not FDA approved, but every single study which has been published so far, whether it's for heart attacks, whether it's for hair loss, whether it's for skin rejuvenation, whether it's for erectile dysfunction, which we do a lot, by the way, using stem cells, has shown benefits. So why is it not FDA approved yet? Why why has the American government not approved it? For a couple of reasons. Number one, all the studies which have been published are relatively small studies, so there is a lack of large-scale clinical trials. And number two, usually clinical studies are mainly sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry, and there's not much interest in supporting that kind of regenerative medicine because the industry is not making money out of it. So it will take probably another 10 years or so until certain indications are approved using stem cells, but it is, and I have no doubts about that, the future of medicine. And once we are more active in repairing using regenerative medicine, including stem cells, for example, then I have no doubt that we will, we won't become immortal. I'm not a believer in that, but I have no doubt that we can prolong our lifespan but not only the lifespan, but more importantly, the health span up to 110, 120 years within the next 10, 15 years, no doubt. Would you conceive this stem cell therapy to be a personalized medicine? Do you think it would be person by person? Or do you think that there'll be stem cell medicines that work for everyone? No, I'm not a believer in that. And in in I, I wrote that book, The Secret World of Stem Cell Therapy, last year, where I, I stayed more a warning not to believe Dr. Google. So a lot of people sell in the US and outside stem cell therapies without having any clinical or scientific reputations. And I, I'm completely against that. And I don't believe that there is such thing as a, a generalized stem cell product, you sell it and it works for everything. Absolutely not. You have to individualize. And if I treat, as I do right now in the frame of clinical studies, someone with multiple sclerosis with stem cells, we have a certain protocol where we use a certain type of of stem cells, usually combination of umbilical cord, for example, placenta tissue into the spine, which communicates with the brain, improving symptoms and in particular mobility of those patients. On the other hand, if I treat someone with hair loss, because we also have a protocol for that, we use a different type and a different approach, of course, where we do like 150 injections into the scalp, um, which also has been very successful. A lot of people come for that, or if someone comes, but it has to be individualized. There's no such thing, oh, you, 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 take a pill and that's it. Do you expect this to be very expensive at first? Well, it is expensive, of course. And there's in the United States, there's no insurance company which covers anything like that. Um, And that will, will take a while because like I said, it's not FDA approved. So it is expensive over time. We hope, however, that it will be cheaper. So what we are trying to do now is money from philanthropic individuals who are willing to really put their name onto the future of medicine, because we need really financial support to conduct those larger trials and then hopefully come to a point in a couple of years where this can become standard therapy and covered by insurance companies. Cardiologist Dr. Ernst von Schwartz there. He is the author of two books on this subject, The Secrets of Immortality and The Secret World of Stem Cell Therapy.
Right, welcome back to the show. And as we've long known, there is nothing better than listening to a love ballad after your heart's been broken. But does it actually make you feel better? When you said you looked a mess, I whispered underneath my breath, but you heard it, darling, you Well, the jury's out on that one, Uh, but a new study does suggest that music that makes your heart ache may actually ease physical pain. Yet researchers have been looking into this hypoallergesic effect of music, or in other words, the ability of songs to reduce discomfort caused by a painful stimulus. Now, they have found a clear link between the two, but it does turn out that certain types of track are more effective than others. And specifically, you're looking for those sort of bittersweet or moving pieces of music that really sort of grab an emotional hold on you. But but not every piece of music works for every person. And the volunteers in the study had a really sort of wide preference in music, a real wide variety of genres. They had things like Tchaikovsky's opera Eugene Onegin. There, there was obviously that song Perfect there by Ed Sheeran. Don't Give Up On Me by Andy Grammer. Uh, and then this one. And I hear you say Yeah, that is Good Help is Hard to Find by Death Cab for Cutie. I have to admit, I don't think that one would work uh, for me. But we wanted to sort of mull over this issue. So we caught up with our favourite musicologist. Doesn't everyone have one? Uh, Dr. Joe Bennett. He is a professor at Berklee College of Music. And he explained why he's not surprised by these findings. I think it's a good thing that the medical research establishment is investigating seriously what a lot of music therapists have asserted for many years that music can to some extent heal what ails you i don't think anyone would disagree with the idea that music affects our emotional selves and nearly all of the studies that we've been reading up including this one relate to pain and pain is obviously a self-reported subjective thing there are lots of ways in which our brains can control pain But I think what the medical establishment is most interested in is what are the alternatives to analgesics? Because famously, as Bob Marley said in the the song Trenchtown Rock, one good thing about music, when it hits, you feel no pain. Uh, So, uh, and I think we could all relate to that from our our favourite music. But um, the challenge, of course, when you're dealing with subjectivity and designing a research study in music, is how do you deal with all the controls that randomized control trials need because everyone has a different listening history pain as we say is subjective and when people self-report on it how do you know what they're feeling and to what extent and the research community has dealt with these methodological issues i think one of the challenges is that so many of the studies are very small numbers of participants but there are essentially two types of studies those that are dealing with patients who are already experiencing pain through some medical condition or other and sort of lab controlled pain where you know typically thermal temporary pain is induced and the patients are asked the participants are asked to report on it but it's it's so hard to take away really concrete musical conclusions from it It's so interesting that they seem to have found that it takes away physical pain. When, of course, I would argue that, in fact, it's always been my advice to any of my friends who've had their hearts broken. I was like, okay, you mustn't listen to music for a while because it just makes it worse. So emotionally, I think music can make you feel more pain when it comes to things like heartbreak, whereas obviously it's shown that it can make you feel less pain when it comes to physical pain. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, and of course that that famous sort of trope that we all listen to sad music when we're heartbroken um, is it, it does seem counterintuitive, doesn't it? And yet people still do it, and there's something clearly cathartic about it. This goes back a long way in I don't want to say music research, but in sort of the experiential philosophy of music, as with almost. <laughs> 
anything uh, scientific, you can trace at least a small thread back to the ancient Greeks. I found a couple of great quotes from Plato, who wrote, uh, music is most sovereign because rhythm and harmony find their way to the inmost soul and take strongest hold upon it imparting grace if one is rightly trained so he was very keen on the idea that you had to to really study music in a scholarly way and aristotle was more on the um, cathartic side I believed that music allowed you to overcome quotes feelings such as pity and fear or enthusiasm and that mystic music allows you to heal and purify the soul now Fine words, of course, but, you know, I want to see the evidence. I want to see those randomised control trials. And in fact, it sounds like I'm wrong then, that actually, you know, according to Plato and, yeah, and according to Aristotle, I'm actually wrong that, that when you have your heart broken, you should listen to music, in fact, that it could be cathartic. Uh, well, yes, although it's very difficult to design a randomized controlled trial study of heartbreak, because how do you know when you feel less or more heartbroken, especially in a lab environment? So a lot of these studies actually deal with, you know, subjective physical pain. It's actually easier to study than emotional pain, of course. But there's now a substantial body of literature out there. You know, one of the meta studies I was reading actually was looking itself at 81 separate papers that all had similar conclusions. Conclusions. And the big takeaways are that people much prefer their own favorite music to lab-selected music. And there are quite a few studies where the lab selects commercially available, quotes, relaxing music, and then compares that in the trial against music selected by the participant. And I guess that makes sense that the participant-selected music is more effective at reducing subjective pain responses because we have an emotional history with those songs. Every listener in the world has a different prior listening catalogue from every other. No two people have ever come up listening to exactly this music the exact same number of times so we all have these subjective associations and we all have our own personal reasons for selecting favorite music the takeaway from the studies is that favorite music is more effective at subjective pain reduction than researcher selected music and, and that's been replicated a number of times so it's fairly robust forensic musicologist dr joe bennett there he's a professor at Berkeley college of music this is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Normally, we uh, go to Chris McCarty at this moment, our head of sport. But our, I'm going to announce it here to the, to the entire globe that Chris McCarty has ditched us to play golf today with Robbie Greenfield. So right now, they're out there. I hope it rains on them, frankly. <laughs> it does look like it's about to rain. Um, and I hope it rains on them because both of them have naffed off to play golf and that means that I can't have either of them to do our sport. So we've replaced them with somebody much, much better. Stepping into the breach heroically is Mark Archer. He is a sports business consultant. He's a regular co-host of Dubai Eye 103.8's Extra Time. And he joins us now on the line. Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's good to have you with us. Who needs those blokes anyway? Uh, good morning, Georgia. Good morning, listeners. Um, the, third, the million dollar question I will ask Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield is where's my invitation well, for a game of golf on a Thursday morning? And I'm here filling in for Chris. But uh, nonetheless, I'd rather be talking to you anyway. Well, exactly. I'm much nicer. I'm much nicer than those two. Uh, and we're actually going to ignore football for the moment because we really did see history made last night with what was, I mean, what was the biggest ever win in Cricket World Cup history? Tell me all about it. Yes, yesterday in Delhi, it was match 24 of the ICC Cricket World Cup. It was Australia taking on the Netherlands. And now, Georgia, we've actually had some upsets in this Cricket World Cup. We've seen the likes of the Netherlands uh, defeat South Africa. That was a massive upset. And we've seen Afghanistan beat Pakistan. So two massive upsets. But I can tell you what, there was not an upset yesterday in Delhi. It was a massive victory for the Aussies who defeated the Netherlands by a, a record tournament victory margin of 309 runs. So a big, big victory for Australia. They batted first, scored 399 for eight wickets. Um, David Warner, the opening batsman, the left-hander, he scored 104 of only 93 deliveries. But the star of the show was Glenn Maxwell, the hard-hitting all-rounder who comes in in the middle order. 
He scored 106 off only 40 deliveries to bring up his 100. He is the fastest ever World Cup century. He broke uh, a record that was actually only only established a couple of weeks ago um, by Aidan Markram, the South African player. He hit nine fours and eight sixes. So Glenn Maxwell scored 106 and he brought up his 100 in 40 deliveries. So Netherlands were chasing 400 for victory, but they were dismissed for only 90 runs in 21 of their 50 overs. It was four wickets for the Australian leg spinner, Adam Zampa, um, with his leg spin that really got the, the wickets for Australia. So a massive one-sided victory for Australia against the Netherlands, which brings him now into the top four after a slow start in the competition. OK, we've got more action today. I wonder whether it'll manage to live up to what happened yesterday. Well, of course, yeah, it's England, the defending champions, um, your very own England's taking on um, Sri Lanka. Now, both teams have been disappointing to date in the World Cup. They've only won, both teams have only won one of their four games. So if England have aspirations of making the top four and a chance of a semi-final position to defend their trophy, it's every game now is a must-win game for England. That match is taking, starting in about two hours' time, it's going to take place in Bengaluru. So it's a massive um, day for both those teams. A, 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 a defeat for any of those teams will probably see their chances eliminated now of going further in the tournament. And if you look towards the top of the table, India, the hosts, are perfect. They've played five, they've won five, they have 10 points. Um, two teams have won four of their five matches at South Africa, the Proteas and New Zealand, the Black Caps. They've won four of their five matches, they're on eight points. And Australia now, with that win yesterday, have moved into fourth position uh, with three victories from five matches. So it's all to play for today. England, it's a must-win game for them, as it is for their opponents, Sri Lanka. Looking forward to that very much indeed, but also looking ahead to the weekend. And I understand you are one of those lucky people that's going to get to go to Paris uh, for the other World Cup. Yeah, look, it's hard for me to get excited about the cricket at the moment whilst we've got two World Cups going on. It's been hard to juggle. And obviously, New Zealand are going great in the Cricket World Cup, but also we've now made the final of the Rugby World Cup. We'll take on our traditional rivals, our, our, our storied history of rugby games against South Africa, the Springboks versus the All Blacks. It's probably the, well, many people would argue it is the game that people are looking forward to. It's a Rugby World Cup final. It gets underway 11 p.m. UAE time, Stade de France in Paris. And these two teams haven't met in a Rugby World Cup final since 1995, that famous final where Nelson Mandela was present, uh, South Africa won with a drop goal by Joel Stransky, Francois Pinar was presented the trophy by Nelson Mandela, those very iconic scenes. So we have both teams have won the Rugby World Cup three times. It's which, yeah, bragging rights will go with which team now wins it a fourth time, the most of a, of a Rugby World Cup nation. And it's a, a massively mouth-watering match between these two teams. There's been some great matches in the last couple of weeks in the quarterfinals. And then South Africa won their semi-final at the weekend. I'm sure you were watching. They won. They defeated England by one point. They've beaten France by one point, England by one point. Let's hope um, New Zealand get up this weekend. Go the All Blacks. Yeah, it's gonna. I have to say, it is going to be the most extraordinary match, and and I think actually this Rugby World Cup has been uh, one of the best in in recent memories, or at least maybe I've been watching it more because I've got two boys of the right age. Uh, but Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the line today. Uh, more, I, I mean, I think you're just better than Chris and Robbie. Maybe we should just just go with you all the time. We we'll just talk to Mark all the time, and they can just play golf. Admittedly, they are Chris and Robbie aren't actually on shift right now. They do do an evening show, so strictly speaking. They should be allowed a bit of time off. Uh, but, of course, we're very disappointed that they wouldn't come to talk to us on the agenda. Uh, but Mark Archer, their sports business consultant and a regular co-host of Dubai Eye 103.8 Extra Time, stepping into the breach with masterful alacrity. Uh, and, yes, of course, Extra Time uh, every single weekend. You can listen in. Uh, Mark's often presenting alongside Tom Urquhart. <laughs> The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.